I would like to begin this week with an announcement. The idea for Thal as well is simple. I want long conversations with interesting people on a variety of topics. There are lots of philosophy podcasts out there, but not many do this. This should have some element of current affairs also, because we need a forum where philosophy can respond to the most pressing issues of the day. I would like to ask you two things. First, for your feedback. I would be interested in hearing ideas about how to make the podcast better. Are there events or ideas you would like me to talk about? Is there somebody who you think would make a good guest? Would you be interested in, for example, if I spoke to a bunch of different people about a specific theme? Like if I did a series on power or governance or free speech? Should the podcast maybe be longer or shorter? You can contact me at talaswellpodcast at gmail.com. I'll respond to all your emails, even if it does take me a while. You can follow me on Twitter at Dr. Philo City, and you can like our Facebook page. Please subscribe and leave a nice review on iTunes. Most importantly, please tell your friends. Recommend the podcast to anyone who you think might be interested. This week, I'm talking to Michael Baranowski. He's a political scientist from Northern Kentucky University. We talked about Mike's intellectual origins, the political philosopher Edmund Burke, the legacy of John McCain, the possibility of socialism in America, and of course, President Trump. As well, we uh, spoke about forthcoming congressional elections. Mike is really smart and an exceptionally clear thinker, and I was really, really pleased to have him on the show. I also have to thank him, as uh, we well and truly nicked his old theme tune. Now, over to the show. Thank you for being with us, Mike. Um... Uh, so I've got, got a bunch of questions I want to ask you about American politics. Uh, you are a political scientist at the uh, University of Kentucky, is that right? Northern Kentucky University. Northern Kentucky. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, so the first thing I want to ask you is about that, that term uh, briefly. You're happy with the appellation political scientist. Why the scientist? Why, 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 why do, I guess, political theorists or political philosophers call themselves political scientists? Because I guess political scientists don't do what conventional scientists do? Well, I think that there's a good reason for the term, and it, it very much relates to our outlook on politics. And so when, when we study politics, we uh, attempt to, as best as we can, use the, the scientific method to do so. And, and so it's really more about our methodology and how we approach answering questions about politics. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we're guided by empirical methods, things that are testable, that are falsifiable, and that there's a, a community to sort of check our work and comment on it. And so really, it's that method that's, uh, that attaches to the term more than anything else. Yeah, so it's a it's a question of um how how you how you how you study the activity of politics. Whereas I guess uh, politics itself might not necessarily be scientific. Oh or, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's probably quite the opposite. It can be quite irrational at times. But uh, how you look at it, you see yourselves as adopting a scientific attitude. Yeah, and, and you know, in doing so, we we hope to the best of our ability to put our own biases in in check to a certain extent. Much and I think that's really one of the the big differences between how political scientists look at politics and how well non-political scientists or non-social scientists look at it is is that because we have that method, it's uh it's I think it's helpful to us to give us a more objectivity. Now, when we're just sort of commenting on politics without using that method, we can be every bit as irrational as, as anyone else, of course. But when we really focus on using that method in our academic work, I think that's that's the goal, certainly. So, yeah, and I mean, that's so important. Um, I mean, I've, I've been reading a lot of uh, Daniel Kahneman uh, uh, recently, um, the, right. uh, so I guess, behavioral psychologist, I guess. And uh, I mean, one of the things, I mean, he he pretty much proves that it is like almost impossible to set aside biases. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's something, you know, in teaching when I tell my students is the question is not if somebody is biased, the question is how much and in what direction, really. Right, yeah, I think Marx says something to that effect, right? I mean, I think he says, <laughs> um, you know, you're never more ideological than when you say you're not. Absolutely. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, now, uh, what I want to talk to you now is a bit about your, um, I guess, your, your background, um, because this interests me. And uh, I've, I've gleaned most of this from uh, listening to your show, The Politics Guys. Um, uh, you don't have a big presence on Google, Michael, I'm afraid. Uh, <laughs> but, um, right. So, in, in a sense, your, 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 your biography or your narrative, I guess, in a sense, is a story of you setting aside biases perhaps shall we say because you were when you were younger um 
quite right wing, I think, and uh, you have become progressively more left wing. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I started out, uh, I, I would say, very, very far right, fairly stridently far right. Uh, I was quite a quite a pain to many of my <laughs> many of my professors who uh, I accused oftentimes of being communists or other things <laughs> like that. Uh, but. But yeah, it was it was a process really of I, I was fairly right wing up until really I started graduate school and then I, I I like to think of what happened as as I was exposed to that scientific method I talked about and sort of a much more uh, comprehensive analysis of politics as a science, it, it made me start to question some of my pre-existing beliefs. And, and while I haven't become, I would say, I wouldn't really say I'd become strongly left-wing, I'd certainly move to what I'd call a center-left, at least in the, in the American context, which I, I would, I would expect by most probably European standards would still put me uh, somewhat right of center, I would guess, slightly. I get, yeah, that 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 seems to be uh, quite a short end. That uh, what uh, Americans, at least in the American context, consider to be center left, uh, Europeans consider to be center right. Can I ask how how far right were you? I mean, yeah, I mean, you weren't a Nazi, like for example. No, 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 nothing like that. I, I was. Uh, I guess I would say I was a a proud Reagan Republican. I uh -huh. was very much in favor of uh, limited government and uh, a strong stance against, at that point, the. Uh, uh, the Soviet threat and uh, a very concerned about about communism and threats to freedom and, and that sort of thing. So uh, that, that that's where I stood. And, and honestly, another part of my evolution on this was I feel that uh, I think it's fairly uncontroversial in most quarters to say that the Republican Party and the conservative movement in the United States changed considerably over the, the last 30 or so years to the point where now people who, well, back then would have been considered fairly far right are now not anywhere close to far right. So in other words, the right moved much further right. And the left did maybe move a little bit further left, but not nearly as much as the right. So really the ground shifted underneath me as well. And as some people put it, you know, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party left me. And I sort of have a, a certain amount of sympathy with that argument. So when you were younger uh, in graduate school, I mean, you, you speak there about, um, you know, uh, supporting Reagan. I mean, and you certainly were not alone in that in the United States at the time. I mean, a hugely popular president, Reagan, when he came to power. I mean, I think he won pretty much... The vast majority of states, did he not? He uh, he had uh, just a massive electoral victory, especially in nineteen in nineteen eighty four, one of the greatest in American presidential election history. Yeah, um, but I'm wondering what, what, where were you on uh, social issues? I mean, if, were you? Uh, would you have considered yourself right wing on issues like, uh, say, abortion or death penalty or things like that? You know, I I, I really was. Uh, to a certain extent, but but again, and this is where exposure to more information, I feel, changed my mind on a lot of social issues. I was I was very much for a, a, a very limited, uh, what we call sometimes social safety net, but a lot of my beliefs were premised on, uh, I guess, what I would call this sort of libertarian esque understanding of human beings as being extraordinarily rational and able to make very good decisions about their long-term interest. And, you know, you mentioned uh, Danny Kahneman and a, a number of other behavioral uh, psychologists and, and also economists who've been doing this work have pretty clearly, I think, demonstrated that in a lot of ways, that's just not how most human beings are most of the mm. time. And so if you have a philosophy that's premised on uh, that behavior, I think when you realize that that behavior is not how real people act, then the, the logical thing to do is to re-examine your philosophy. Right. And that's where, I guess that's where it starts for you then, right? The, uh, because I mean, that's your story is interesting. And as, uh, as I said in our correspondence uh, prior to this, that, uh, I mean, your story should really be essential reading for those on the left, as because you're someone who's come a long way. I think that's fair to say you've come a long way from where you are to to where you are now. Yeah, I, I, I'd certainly like I'd certainly like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, um, also, uh, so did you have a, a religious background? Did you have a um, were you were, were, did you have a military background? Is that correct? 
I had uh, both a both a religious and a, a military background, and of course, uh, those are two institutions, uh, especially uh, Catholicism in the United States and and the military that are. I would say strongly conservative, and those things sort of, I think, reinforce. Yeah, over here too. Over here too. Okay, there you go. So, so yeah, you know, and I was, I was sort of immersed in in that culture, and so I think that also sort of reinforced my uh, uh, some. Uh, conservative viewpoints, and, and my my parents were fairly conservative, and my my neighborhood and that sort of thing, and all those things I think work together. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, can I ask? Um, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to ask you a personal question, Michael. Now, so we can we sure can, go ahead. If we can, we can edit it out afterwards. If, you, if <laughs> okay, if, if, sure. If you deem it inappropriate. So, um, did you when you made these changes? Um, did it affect your relationships with your friends, with your family, with, with colleagues? Well, I guess I would say it didn't really affect my relationships with colleagues so much because academia tends to be uh, a fairly fairly liberal outside of the, the sciences and business and so forth. And so, if anything, it made my relationships with my colleagues, uh, you know, less fraught. Uh, but with my family, I think to to a certain extent, my 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 parents were a little uh surprised i guess at, at my at my change or they might consider it my conversion i don't know but uh <laughs> so yeah so yeah i guess to a, to a certain extent and you know and i guess there were some people who would say well it seems like you sort of adapted to the crowd you were running with and you know i think it's important to say that uh, you know there's maybe an element of truth to that is what we've seen is that you know people do tend to do that sort of thing but i also think that there's a strong uh, grounds in logic and reasoning that I that I made the change that I did. Okay, thank you. Um, so uh, one of the things you mentioned uh, in, in relation to your, I guess, your initial uh, libertarianism is uh, your um, belief in, uh, well, the rationality of politics. Um, so m- maybe you might now think that libertarians are less rational than they, they propose to be, but you um, you still do have that, don't you? You still have a. I mean, your the, your show of the politics guys is about trying to bring sanity, calmness, uh, and a serene detachedness to to political sure. analysis. Yeah, I think I think this maybe works on on two levels. The, the issue I have with libertarians in general is that they have a a, a largely incorrect view of of human nature, and, and so. If, if therefore, if you have an, inc- if you're premising your philosophy on an incorrect view of human nature, that in and of itself is not rational. And so I think it's possible to practice as a rational politics, but to do so, you have to have a, a good, uh, reasonable understanding of how people behave. If, if you don't have that, then the whole project sort of falls apart. Right. So, I mean, when I, when I talk to my students, I teach uh, some political philosophy at undergraduate level and what I always, how I know maybe you do this as well, but when I start with them, I try to tell them that politics is largely irrational. Mm-hmm. Um, the activity of politics, that is. We can think about it rationally, perhaps. But it's also a question, and you, you've, you've alluded to, to it there. You've said that, you know, you have to, you have to start out with a, a, an accurate view of what human beings are like. I mean... And then, and then you can begin to think about what type of uh, society you you want you, when you if you if you if you if you move on from that. I find a lot of my students, maybe you find the same. They tend to look at politics as sort of um, I think more more ethical. They start with their ethics and then they go, well, what type of society would should we should we take from that or can we build right. from that? Like, what is it? Should we have a welfare state? Should we have harsh drug laws? Whatever you know. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, and that that's sort of a. I, I would argue that that's a a problem that we have, and that people start from, understandably so, start from their own personal ethics experiences hmm. and so forth. And what I found is that uh, the more that we base everything on that, the more difficult it is to sort of understand that. Well, not everyone experiences the world in the same way. And so if, if again, you know, I think a lot of coming back to the libertarian point, I think a lot of libertarians are very rational and intelligent people. And I sometimes kid my libertarian friends, well, if everyone were like you, I think libertarianism would work out great, but everyone's not. And what I found, especially in, in recent years is there seems to be an increasing uh, difficulty for people to 
put themselves into the worldview of the other. And I think unless we can do that, unless we make a real effort to do that on a regular basis, then it's going to be very difficult to come to uh, compromises, to come to, you know, shared solutions to problems, which is, I think, at the, you know, the heart of democratic governance. I think, well, I think you're absolutely right. But I mean, how do you begin to do that? How do you I mean, how do you begin to put yourself into the shoes of the other person in a political sense and see where other people are coming from? Um, if especially if things are so compromised as they are, I think by by technology and social media and the like. I think that's a you know that's a great question and an incredibly difficult uh, thing to to come to a you know a satisfactory solution to. And it's one of the reasons why uh, you know I, I started a podcast a few years ago because I was seeing exactly this happening and I thought, well, why isn't there why aren't there more forums for for conservatives and liberals to try to talk things out. And, and because of my, I guess, unique background, I had, you know, long-term, long-time friends who were, who saw the world differently from the way I did. But there was that reservoir of goodwill that you build up over decades of friendship. And so I thought, well, maybe we can use this as a way to civilly discuss our differences. And that's kind of the genesis for what I was trying to do with the podcast. And I really think that's at the heart of it is you need to assume a level of goodwill and good intention on the part of your ideological uh, opponent, if you will, that they want essentially the same things for themselves and their, their families and their loved ones, but they just are trying to get there from different ways, from different fundamental premises. And if we don't believe that, if we choose to view the other as, as, as evil or stupid or some combination thereof, well, I think we're, we've, we're lost right from the beginning. Yeah, so it's about adopting a principle of charity um, yes uh, yeah about, about your say about your your opponent's views or someone who's different views and it's, oh, it's so difficult michael when you you're when you have people i guess trying to you know climb the same mountain from different sides <laughs> Yeah, well, no, I mean, absolutely. And I think, you know, you mentioned social media. It makes it so much more difficult because, of course, in social media, every comment is almost by, by its very nature of the medium decontextualized. And so people read into these comments their, their greatest fears and concerns about the other side. And I think it's much harder to take that uh, charitable view. And so I think that's a big part of why we're in the mess we're in now. Do you feel sometimes that you're swimming against the tide. Oh, gosh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, absolutely. You know, and I think when I look at uh, when I look at what the most popular uh, political podcasts are, for instance, and, you know, there are these things that really preach to the choir. And it's not the kind of thing that, you know, uh, a conservative would ever listen to or a liberal will ever listen to. They're just people feeding red meat to the base. And, and, and I get why that's so popular. And it's so difficult because I think if you, if you push against that, you're pushing against that sort of fundamental tribalism of, of human nature. And I think it's a tough thing to do, but I think it's a battle really worth engaging in. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's, and tribalism, that word you use is, um, well, tribalism is enjoyable. It's, you know, it's, oh, yeah. it's a, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to, 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 to run with the crowd. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So, um, one of the things then, uh, that I'd like, I wanted to talk to you uh, about, um, and I think this fits in with your, with your own backstory as well. And, um, this is uh, about uh, John McCain, and I think because because uh, John McCain is, I think, someone uh, who um, how shall I put it? Um, well, firstly, he's someone that I think Europeans could uh, pay attention to because I I think he's a very he's a very significant placeholder for how American politics operates, right? Sure. Um, so, and also I think you had some, I think you were on the, um, you, you campaigned for John McCain, I think at one, once upon a time. So I, I was wondering maybe, could you please tell us what is it about, uh, John McCain? And, uh, who, I mean, he's, he's passed away recently. What is it uh, about his character that is so, I go, sure. significant or symbolic yeah. about American politics? No, I, I think he, he represented a, 
uh, a type or, or an approach to politics that uh, sadly I find to be in in great decline. Uh, there's this this notion, this phrase I, I love: uh, the the happy warrior, the person who who throws him or herself into the fray with with a great deal of relish, but but at, but not not in a sort of a mean spirited, vindictive way. Who at, at the end of the day can can understand that we share a a common humanity, and that doesn't mean they don't enjoy the you know the cut and thrust of battle, but that there's a certain fundamental decency. That both sides, uh, uh, that both sides observe, and that's what makes the that's what makes the, the game, if you will, playable. And and John McCain, I think, greatly exemplified that sort of thing. And in fact, do you know there were plenty of people in 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 the the nineteen seventies, nineteen eighties, even into the early nineteen nineties in American politics, who you could find who had that sort of attitude toward politics. But now it's become this sort of zero sum game where you not only have to battle your opponent on policy, but you have to demonize your opponent. And and that I think makes it so much more difficult to recover from a loss when everything is personal. And, and everything is, uh, uh, you know, again, this sort of zero sum game and your opponent is this this evil entity who must be vanquished uh, at all costs entirely. I think, yeah. And I think, I mean, he was um, the, the, the McCain, the character was, I mean, I was in the United States a couple of weeks ago. I was in Texas. And um, one of the things I noticed I mean, uh, was, uh, I mean, I visited the state capital in Austin and uh I said I did politics tours and basically like a massive nerd, but uh, <laughs> but he uh, he was um, well. What what I noticed right was um, all of the uh, the flags were at half mast on public buildings, right? So that to me says that this is that that is an indicator of the passing of of something very very significant. Now I'm not really interested in you know the you know the partisan uh, views of what McCain was about right right um i mean personally i probably found him quite distasteful but that's neither here nor there um but, but you know that that pressed home to me you know those fl- flags flying at half mast for this what was a military hero i mean he was factually a military hero um that this was a significant man or this was a uh, this was this was someone who was uh, who, who who really really spoke to america yeah no, I, I agree. And this is part of the, the problem that I have with, with, with President Trump is that sort of mean spirited type of, well, I, mm. I will not even acknowledge the, the decency, the humanity of my opponents. I will just delegitimize them. And that, that to me is a fundamental break with how politics uh, needs to be practiced if we are to have some sort of a cohesive uh, cohesive society and that doesn't you know that's not just the American context I think we you know we see this I think in in a number of other countries where you know authoritarian leaders rise up who refuse to even legitimize uh, alternative views and that to me is incredibly troubling so yeah and I mean yeah I mean there's something do you think there was something ultimately tragic about the figure of McCain? I mean, the reason I ask that is uh, I know that you're um, you're a fan of uh, oh sorry, what his name is uh, Infinite Jest, David David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace, yeah, yeah. So and he wrote um, what I consider to be at least uh, a minor political uh, masterpiece, which was um, Up Simba, his essay on the McCain, um, yeah, the McCain uh, campaign, which you the McCain campaign in. Uh, 2004, I'm guessing. Is that right? Is that no 2000? That was the, the 2000 campaign. 2000, yeah, that was a great piece. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's absolutely uh, a really unique piece of political writing. But in that, I mean, I think what I mean, Foster Wallace's sort of perspective is is he's, he's he he tries to examine questions of sincerity, right? And you got the feeling when reading that, and I don't know if you got this when you were campaigning at the time, but that McCain was someone struggling with the sort of the more cynical side of politics. That, and as the campaign grew dirtier and dirtier, and he was hit hard in that campaign, if I recall, he became more and more willing to, you know, uh, go to the, mm-hmm. towards the dark arts. So in some sense, right. that's why I think he might be a, a tragic figure. And that's why he was lamented so much. No, no, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that that uh, 
you mentioned struggle, and I think that's that's very important. I mean, to me, the the figures that most disturb me are those who don't struggle. <laughs> I mean, that, that idea that I have this, I have this certainty and this worldview, and I and, and you know, and that that really that really bothers me. And I always got the sense that John McCain was somebody who certainly had firm convictions, but but there was this struggle, and and more than that, there was I can't think of a better word, but there was a, a sort of a heart, a, a bigness of of self, generosity. That yeah, a generosity that that I think is so incredibly important. That everything wasn't just a matter of cold calculation, and you know, and that's that's what worries me. I see less and less of of that sort of thing. Now there are some American politicians who I think still exemplify that, but they're getting so difficult to find these days. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, the uh, the current uh, incumbent in the White House, I mean, President Trump was very, you know, he was famously dismissive of John McCain's war record uh, during the campaign, you know. So yep. you, I guess you would take that as exemplifying that lack of generosity, you know, this guy's exactly. this guy's a charlatan. You know, he he got captured. You know, and you know, only good soldiers uh, escape and win wars. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that that's the kind of. I mean, that's the sort of a typical Trump comment that I think that speaks to something fundamental about his personality. Something that I think is fundamentally uh, ungenerous, and I would argue to a certain extent, just downright broken. Yeah. Um, well, maybe we can talk about that, uh, uh, President Trump, towards the end, because uh, it would be useful for our podcast listeners to get uh, the perspective of uh, an American on President Trump. But uh, the, the, I think to begin to talk about that, I mean, one of the things I'd like to talk to you about uh, is um, why is the word socialist so dirty in the uh, United States? Yeah, you know, uh, I think there's a there's a long history of that, certainly. And, and obviously, if you go you know, far back there, there was in fact the early 20th century, there was kind of a strong socialist movement in, in the United States, but it, it petered out for a variety of reasons. But I think just going back to the, to the 19, no, 1980s, you know, we saw certainly with, with the rise of, of, of Ronald Reagan and sort of the new conservative movement that, that I think it ties in really to that whole idea of American, uh, uh, let's say independence, but that sort of can-do frontier individualist sort of spirit. And I think just for a variety of reasons, uh, America has never been quite as um, communitarian, maybe much more individualist than a lot of places in Europe. And so it just never found as as fertile ground, that sort of idea of, you know, the taking care for the common good and that sort of thing. And so I think that's why socialism is just seen much more as, as a dirty word and where it's just part of the American character that, that just differentiates us a, a great deal from from Europe in particular. I think less from less from the UK. I mean, there was sort of a, I think, a similar movement in the 80s in you know in in uh, in the UK with with Margaret Thatcher and that sort of thing so we can see some parallels but certainly to a much greater extent in the United States yeah i mean like if you look at perhaps the biggest exponent of a socialistic we'll say politics in the united states uh, bernie sanders um i mean when when i saw him running against hillary clinton i was going to go oh i mean if he actually wins that the, the primary Americans are never going to go with a socialist ever, you know. Right. I mean, I mean, sorry. I guess like Franklin Roosevelt, who was probably the closest American president to what you could call a socialist or a, a European style socialist, at least, uh, was 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 still not a socialist. I mean, he was a sort of a, a, a modern day liberal, I guess, who did, you know, expand government in a big way. But that was in a crisis. Yeah. Well, I think you know, I think part of it also is almost in a way, kind of a branding issue uh and and that certainly you had presidents like Roosevelt or even more recently in the American experience presidents like uh Lyndon Johnson who were very much i mean they 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 promoted programs that one might 
call, you know, at least approaching socialism, but just by oh, so Medicare and Medicaid, Medicare and Medicaid. And even Richard Nixon had some extraordinarily liberal policies. He, he was interested in this idea of a, of a, a universal health care and a, a universal basic income. These were things that came up in his administration. So it's not like a lot of the actual programs are foreign, but, but I think also in understanding why the United States is so resistant to this, it's important to understand that this idea of socialism is in some ways tied to the idea of communism, rightly or wrongly. And of course, for, you mm-hmm. know, since the end of, well, well, really for most of the 20th century, century, the United States was essentially engaged in what it felt was like an existential struggle against communism. And so I, I think in a way we were so oriented toward that. And I think it's difficult for even Americans uh, who aren't at least, say, I would say maybe 40 years old or older to appreciate how that shaped politics and life in general in the United States. And so I think a lot of this is just a, a carryover because it's difficult for us to disentangle socialism from communism. And there was just such a great fear of communism in the United States. And I think there's a lot of that, that just carries over. I mean, well, with things like the Cuban Missiles Crisis and the rising Cold War tensions, that makes sense because, you know, I mean, this this was the same in Europe as well. I mean, I, I remember, you know, doing, being told about the nuclear bomb and stuff like that in, in school. I mean, Ireland, where I, where I grew up, was neutral, but, um, you know... <laughs> If the UK was uh, yeah, up, uh, right, right, yeah, fallout, fallout is not very cognizant of borders, yeah. the, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, it was an existential threat, which is why uh, I think we could say lots and lots of lots of Americans on both left and right are skeptical of the word socialism. It's and if it's an existential threat, that means that you know. This is a matter of life and yeah. death, which it was. Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And and a lot of Americans, I think, see this as sort of a a slippery slope type of thing. Is that uh, socialism will inevitably lead to this this massive loss of freedom, and that's what they're concerned about. Now, I think the logic for that is is faulty. I would make a very different argument, but I think that's how oftentimes people of the right see it. Yeah, and I think. And I'm, and I'm saying this as an outsider as well. I mean, I think one of the things, and correct me if I'm wrong, that binds Americans, whether on the left and right, is an idea that in some sense, government shouldn't be centralized. It should be, it should be, um, uh, smaller. Yeah. It should be weaker, at least. I mean, I, 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 I getting this from, well, another outsider actually, Talkful. He says this in his, uh, in his, um, oh, Democracy in America. David, Democracy in yeah. America. Yeah, he says this that uh, you know the idea that central government should be small, and then you have a, I guess you have a federal system, yeah. right? Where 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 the reign of government should be loose. Yeah, you know, I think that's that's also been just baked into our character since well, since even before the United States was a country. Certainly, that sort of uh, of fierce independence and local control, and that that those things have been important to Americans and part of the way we look at understand politics politics and life for hundreds of years now. And so I think that definitely goes into our, you know, current skepticism with centralized, uh, centralized control. Okay. Um, so uh, moving, uh, moving on, because there's, there's lots I'd like to get to talk to you uh, about. Uh, one of the figures that you're interested in, I guess this is why you're, this is why you're sort of on the center left and comfortable with ideas from, uh, say, perhaps the center right. Is that uh, you? You you do like Edmund? Yeah, Burke, very much. Yeah, right? very much so. My fellow fellow Irishman, <laughs> uh, the one of the founding fathers of uh, conservatism. Uh, so how is it possible then for someone on the center left to like uh, Burke? What does he offer the left? Do well, you think? I guess in a word, I'd say humility. Uh, and as as I as I understand Burke, one of his central ideas is that human beings are you know very limited creatures, and that we have a tendency to think we understand everything. We moderns of whatever area uh, that that we figured it out, and these these poor unenlightened folks of the past just did not have our our advantages and so forth. But but. Time and time again, we found that that's just not the case. And I think that's the argument he makes for tradition is that things, you know, that the world is a complex place. 
and that if you think you understand it and you think you can make great changes to it without unintended consequences, you are almost certainly going to be proven wrong. And I, I would argue, you know, centuries, if not millennia of experience back up that observation. And so to me, the importance of Burke is that, that we need to check our, we need to check our hubris. We need to understand that we almost certainly do not know all the answers and that our brilliant solutions are going to almost certainly cause a whole bunch of problems that we're not aware of. And so therefore, unintended consequences. Yeah, unintended consequences. So therefore, we should proceed with caution. And to me, that's, that's the central lesson I take away from Burke and why I think both the left and the right should be, you know, should, should recognize that. Yeah. And so in a sense, what Burke is doing, he's saying that humans are, um, what's the word? Imperfect in yeah. some sense. Yeah. And, uh, I mean, that, that, sorry, that possibly appeals to my old Catholic fatalism <laughs> as well, you know, but it's, it's something that tim- tempers, I suppose, from your perspective, it tempers the, the rampant optimism that, say, perhaps you might find yeah. on the left sometimes, you know, the idea that you can, you can, you know, that things could be zero sum, all or nothing. You can radically transform society in one yeah. go. Yeah, I mean, and that, that's that's why I think I'm a, a person of the center left and not the left full stop. Because when I get when you get further left, the proposals start to get a lot more radical, and and, and that's when my inner Burkean kicks in. It says, "Well, wait a second. I think you're you're going too far, and and we need to proceed much more slowly with a certain uh, respect." For the past, before we just throw out, you know, throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, inadvertently. Uh, another conservative thinker, uh, Chesterton, says that he says, uh, if you're if you're going to rip, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, and it, it escapes me slightly, but I think he says something to the effect that if you're if you're going to tear down a fence, you should probably check why it yes. was put up. In yes, yes, I'm also I'm also a big fan of Chesterton as well, and I think there's just a a lot of wisdom in that, and I would argue that. Both the not only not only the left has largely forgotten this or just dismissed this as unimportant or, or you know a relic of the past, but the right has too. And, you know, conservatives, modern conservatives, are really more, I would argue, uh, right wing reactionaries than true conservatives in that sort of Berkey and Chestertonian sense because they want to radically remake society as well, just in a different direction. Yeah, and that's that's interesting to me. Like, I mean. One of the things that strikes me about, I mean, positions that they do do right, you could maybe say Reagan was like this. You could certainly say Thatcher was like this. And that was that they, for figures at the right, you know, uh, someone like Thatcher, who who had, you know, some strong conservative values, traditional conservative values, but was also sort of excessively sort of uh, liberal in, econ- in an economic sense, mm-hmm. you know, and that and uh, and that is that was. It was somewhat utopian about yeah. that. I mean, you mentioned this about libertarians as well, is that we do we, we tend to forget this maybe, and I'd be interested to hear your perspective, is that people on the right can be quite utopian. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, and I think that it's utopian thinking is just so uh, so compelling <laughs> that, that, that everyone wouldn't yeah, it yeah. be great if we could just do these two or three things and boom society would be so much better and yes it would be great but that's not that's not how the world works and I think that that's something that too many too many people have either forgotten or just never realized in the first place yeah and so do you think then sorry do you think then that um yeah I mean do you think the horse is bolted effectively I mean do you think that that that, uh, that we have moved so far in our politics along, I guess, what some on the left would call neoliberal economic lines, yeah. or you know, free market, uh, free free marketeer uh, lines? I mean, and yeah, I mean, you know, traditional conservatives are very, very skeptical of of, of you know rampant markets. Uh, this is is this something that we can overturn in sort of say democratic uh, societies? Well, let's say in your case, an American yeah. society. You know, it's something that I that that I worry about and I think about a lot. And uh, I guess I, I'd like to be optimistic, but honestly, when I when I look at when I look at trends, uh, I, I see how things are going, and try to predict how where technology is going to take us, I I. I have a hard time being incredibly optimistic about much of this changing for 
the better, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I mean, is it, that is very Burkean in itself, isn't it? Yeah. It's a, a fund, it's just sort of a basic pessimist, pessimism about uh, human beings and their capacity to improve. Yeah, a- absolutely. And I think that you know, there's that obviously that that notion that uh, that very modern uh, Enlightenment notion that you know we're on this continual path of of progress, uninterrupted progress, with maybe a few little fits and starts here. But I I tend to maybe be a little more sympathetic to an older view that that things might be a little more cyclical and that we can actually have major reversals for extended periods of time. And and I think people who don't believe that are maybe uh, blind to a, a lot of our history as, as, you know, as human beings. Yeah. Okay. So where we are now, prior to the last presidential election in the United States, uh, on your show, you were very, very critical of uh, candidate Donald Trump. Uh, I think I recall, I mean, you, you saw him as, uh, as, a, as, 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 as someone who was, I suppose, uh, unfit for the, for the role. Mm-hmm. And um, do you think that Donald Trump, continuing on from what we've talked about, is someone that has moved, you know, conservatism and has moved America beyond what it's capable of coping with uh, in yeah. political terms? I mean... I'm. I'm not sure how apocalyptic you want to sure, be. Sure. No. 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 But, yeah. But, but I'm. I'm interested. Yeah. So I'm interested, Mike, in saying where, where, for where you were then, say, I don't know, October 2016, to where you are now. Yeah. How do you think? Where, 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 where are we with? Uh, what, right. What, what, what Trump, Trump has brought to the American uh, body politic? Well, here's a case where maybe I can be surprisingly. Uh, a little bit optimistic, I, I think. Uh, maybe it's some people call it just whistling past the graveyard. I don't know. Uh, but but my sense of things is that Donald Trump is more likely than not a one-off. He's an extraordinarily unique individual with the, the sort of background and uh, talents, if you will, that are very difficult to to replicate. I my my thinking and maybe my hope is that he captured. A moment in society. It was the right, the, as well, the, the right man at the right time, uh, who's sort of, uh, uh, capturing this, this last gasp of a certain type of America, a certain type of American who's longing for times when, you know, a white male uh, supremacy, I guess, was, was sort of the order of the day, a, a bygone America. And, and, and my thinking is that, this will be a one-off and that once Donald Trump is gone from the public scene, we're going to see at least somewhat of a return to what I would call more normal politics uh, because – simply because I don't think anyone's going to be able to successfully replicate what Donald Trump has done, number one, because he's such a unique individual and number two, because the coalition that, bar- that brought him to power is starting to decline in power and, you know, in part just because of demographics. Yeah, um, that's, uh, that's interesting. And do you think – I mean the message he – you know, the message he bought, you know, make America great again – uh, which is, I guess, an essentially conservative idea, you know, uh, that he wants to return to a past that may or may not have been there. He had a message of economic nationalism and sort of anti-global trade. Uh, do you think that he's been yeah. a- able to implement any of the of his uh, of his campaign promises? Oh, ab- ab- absolutely. Certainly, we see we see it on trade, which is just a continual source of of uh, dis- dismay. To me, but on the on the bright side, it seems like uh, even most Republicans or many Republicans in the United States government are actually opposed to this, and maybe even more importantly, the business community is very much opposed to this. And so, I think the weight of that opposition will almost certainly ensure that. At some point in the not too distant future, maybe it will be after Donald Trump is no longer president, that things will revert because I think just the inexorable logic of free trade and prosperity. That's not to say that on this issue that, you know, that, that uh, there isn't a certain uh, point to be made about the winners and losers of free trade and having to take better care of those who have not benefited from it. But this idea of simply going back to this economic nationalism, I think that just is so just so wrong at its basis that inevitably we're going to move back to more of a free trade regime. Right. So uh, do you think, so you don't think, I guess, that he's implemented um, irrevocable changes within the American body politic? Correct. 
Well, you know, I, I think, I think in our, in, in the American system, the president can only do so much on his own to actually make changes that, that stick, that are lasting past his presidency. He needs congressional approval. And on, on a lot of issues, he's just not going to get the buy-in, even from his own party, to make those sort of things happen, which I think is, you know, a very good thing, obviously. Well, even within his own administration, if uh, yeah. Bob Woodward's uh, recent yeah. book is uh, to be believed, yeah, I think that says something perhaps about American politics, doesn't it? Because I mean, if you look at sort of the American executive, I mean, uh, it's I mean, it's famously. I guess it's kind of famously Burkean in a way, isn't it? Because it, it's kind of uh, designed for gridlock. It, yeah. it sort of it, it, it prohibits sort of radical change as very rarely that someone can bring in big changes like, yeah. say, I mean, which is why Obama's healthcare initiatives were so um, so exceptional because they were so rare. But, uh, you know, the... the, the, the um, it's it's a it's very very difficult to introduce hugely yeah. deleterious effects because the the well I mean because of the way the Senate is set up and there's you know there's elections that are that are done in thirds and things like that it's very hard for someone to get a to gain absolute power power is yeah. divided but yeah, yeah. that took value thing again isn't it there's a, a, a central weakness in a, in, in government. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. At least one thing I find interesting is that almost every every former U.S. president, when asked about, you know, lessons learned and things that surprised them, invariably one of the things they say is, I thought I'd have a lot more power than I actually have, you know. And, and this, you know, these are bright individuals, many who have, you know, extensive experience with government. And I think that really brings home how the American system is, is designed to frustrate radical change. And I think certainly that while it certainly can frustrate me at times, in the end, I think that's, that's, that's a good thing. And certainly, you know, a, a Burkean type of type of feature, if you will. Yeah. Yeah, true. Yeah, you are, you are, a, you are a true Burkean, I think, uh, at heart, at least. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things like looking at it from the outside is that, um, and again, I go back to the Bob Woodward book here, is that one of uh, President Trump's continual refrain seems to be it's 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 not fair it's not fair this is not fair which you know it, it, which sounds quite childish uh, uh in, in in some level but i mean he was elected on that one of the things he said is you know his, what was one of his campaign terms is this system is rigged you know the system is yeah. rigged um do you think he's doing that that type of message has done has done damage to the sort of the, the legitimacy of american institutions or or do they have the capacity to to repel that or revitalize themselves to me to me that's the that's the greatest concern about the trump presidency not his policies which i think can be in many cases will be moderated or reversed but the damage and i think it's going to be lasting damage that he's done to uh trust in government and institutions now that's something that's been in been in great decline since really the you know late 1960s early 1970s but he's you know jumped on on this with with both feet and i think really accelerated it to an incredibly worrisome degree. And, and I don't know how necessarily we recover from that or how quickly we can even, or even if we can at all. Right, right. So that is, that is, that is certainly, um, that is certainly uh, concerning. Yeah, I mean, we could probably talk about uh, President Trump uh, all, all day. I think, although I think one of the people on your podcast, um, I think, I think it might have been a, an old friend of yours. It was a, it was a, it was a Trump supporter. And uh, I think uh, they were, um, I think they were quite stoic about the whole thing, you know. And so there was sort of a, that sort of maybe some conservative wisdom there. The, you know, the idea that you know it's not all or nothing, or you know it's not, uh, you know that uh, you know politicians come and go. There'll be someone else along in a couple of years. This is you know, you know maybe they're taking the long right. view of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think I think absolutely. You know that definitely was was that. That, that particular person's view and that, you know, politics is not nearly as important as many people make it out to be, which I think sort of ties into that idea that as people have abandoned greater uh, sources of meaning, like, for instance, religion, that uh, many people have clung to politics or adapted politics as the, the source of meaning in their lives and given it a, an importance greater than, than what it necessarily merits. But on the other hand, I would say, well, that's perhaps easier to say as a uh, as a privileged white male person in the United States when you know the stakes aren't nearly as high for you as they are for say a young black man or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Now, um, in terms of where you see future trends emerging, I mean, bearing in mind uh, the current U.S. administration, what do you think is, I guess, well, generally, what are the important issues facing American politics in the uh, in the medium to long term, especially given you know the changes that uh, that, uh, that 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 sort of uh, the, you know the Trump administration or more than any administration will will bring in? So, what are the parties for the future of the left left wing politics, perhaps, in the United States, or where do you see themselves? Or do you see a coalition emerging? Well, I certainly see that I guess the most important problems that I think are, uh, number one, sort of an unsustainable uh, fiscal path that the United States is on, in large part, I would argue, because we're we're big fans of uh, lowering taxes and not decreasing spending, which eventually is is a is you know designed to fail. And obviously, I as a person of of the left, at least to a certain extent, I I believe that we need to really radically re-examine that in terms of really uh, asking those who have more to to give more. For, for the common good. And certainly that's not a policy that's very popular on, on the right, obviously with Republicans just passing a, you know, over a trillion dollar tax cut. Uh, I think the other issue that I think is of literally existential importance is, is the climate change issue. And I think there's a, certainly a strong consensus on the left about that. Now, as to what we're necessarily going to do about that, I don't know. My hope is that once Donald Trump is out of office, we will revert to our support for the uh, the, the Paris Accords and go even further than that. I don't know if that's going to happen, but certainly my hope is that it will and that it's not too little too late. What uh, do you think, in addition to what you said, I mean, that's that's clearly going to be issues facing all politicians in the long term. Do you think, I mean, this seems to me to be something that will strike to the heart of uh, economies around the world, but in particular, former manufacturing economies such as the UK and I think such as the United States, and that's uh, automation. Is that something that you have uh, anxieties yeah. over? Yeah, you know, I think that's that that's a big issue as well. And I think that's going to fundamentally alter, you know, politics and society and, and really everything. And I, you know, I've done a lot of reading on this and actually talked to some people who are experts in this field. And it seems to me that we're, we're facing inevitably a, a very different future with, with mass, uh, un or underemployment. Now, I know some people are optimistic saying that, well, you know, we've always found jobs for people. But I think this is a this is a, a difference in kind, and that society and politics are going to be forced to adapt, and it could be a pretty bumpy ride until until we do. Yeah, I mean, and that that begs the question to be: um, Do you think? I mean, you're a political scientist. I mean, you mentioned and you mentioned Trump's uh, his tax cuts uh, legislation. Um, you know, and to my mind, that type of legislation always works in the short term. You know, I mean, you, you always get some bumps, uh, uh, because, you know, the, you know, because in, in, in businesses and things like that, uh, I've got more money to spend and therefore can hire more workers and whatnot. But uh, usually in the long term, at least from what I've looked at, the, these, these, this, this tends, tends to be, uh, can be disastrous. Yeah. But uh, I guess, I mean, that's not really my question. I guess my question is like, how can you inject long term thinking? into a short-term business-like yeah. democracy. I mean, that's, 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 that's the million-dollar question. I mean, and, and I don't know, yeah. <laughs> I don't know that you necessarily can. I think as, as the system was originally conceived, it was actually considerably less democratic and it allowed People to the people who were in charge, the the elites. That's become a dirty word now, but I'll use it in a in a non pejorative sense. The elites too maybe engage in more long term thinking, but now everything in our society and politics pushes against that, and I think it's become so much harder to do. And and that certainly is, I think, a problem not just in the United States, but with democratic societies uh, in general around the world. Absolutely, and I I don't have any better answers uh, than you on that. Yeah. Um, and do you think um, where are the uh, what, in terms of uh, the American left and where do you do you think um, I mean what type of candidates do you think would would be able to you know run against Donald Trump's uh, message I mean traditionally and you might I might be wrong on this but traditionally incumbents have a very in American presidential elections have a very good chance of being reelected you know clearly the Hillary Clinton model you know that sort sort of center left. Uh, well, sort of fiscally prudent center left or, or left on social issues model uh, did not work. Um, 
So does, do you think that the left needs to, to, to radically uh, transform his ideas? Is it time for an American socialist? I, I, I really don't think so. I think that's exactly what, you know, pushes in that direction of that utopian thinking that, that I think would be, would be disastrous on the other end of things. And so I, I think the sort of, unfortunately, again, because that's so popular, those are the sort of politicians on the left who we see emerging as the strongest possible challengers to, uh, Donald Trump. But, but to me, the, the sort of person who has the, the best chance of bringing back a, a type of sort of moderate sanity to the system is a person like, I would say, like, like a Joe Biden, who was, you know, a, a vice president under, under Barack Obama, who exemplifies again that older tradition. I think he shares a lot of things in common with, well, you, you mentioned John McCain. I think he shares a lot of things in common with that older tradition. And I think unless we return to that tradition, then I think the future looks pretty bleak, actually. Okay, and again, that's probably a, a uh, uh, that's a, probably another conservative position that you're, you know, a return to an older tradition. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, we 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 uh, and I mean, yeah, that, that's yeah. I'm not saying that's right, right, wrong, or right, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it does it does strike me that, and I think probably this is true in Britain as well. It's that there's you know, I mean, Donald Trump is approximately seventy years old. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Joe Biden is old. You know, I mean, they're they're older people, and yeah. Yeah, the world that they the world that they the world that they grew up in is 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 not there, but it's 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 something that they represent, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean that that's the problem. When I look at at younger politicians who exemplify this, I don't that there aren't a whole lot of there aren't a whole lot of names that come to mind, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, and uh, leftists, uh, um, uh, young leftists, uh, tend to be impatient. Yes, as well. absolutely. <laughs> And that's, again, that's not a that's not a judgment. Uh, the, uh, that that could be quite fruitful as well. Um, yeah, so I I think I only have a couple of more questions for you, Mike. Um, you have some uh, forthcoming elections coming up in the United States. So these are uh, congressional elections, I think. Yes, yes. Is that right? Yes, yeah. So I'm wondering, uh, what's your uh, take on that? What is what What are the things do you think to watch out for? Uh, is this is this going to be the American electorate? Uh, giving, uh, you know, yeah, well, I- having, ha- having a go at Trump, I guess. One of the, I think, one of the uh, felicitous uh, features in our in our system is that there tends to be uh, reactions to uh, uh, to agendas that are are seen as radical, whether they're on the right and the left. And so there is a uh, political scientists have observed that almost invariably the president's uh, the president's party tends to lose seats in the legislature in what we call midterm elections between uh, presidential years. And so it's it's a near certainty that Democrats will uh, gain seats in both the House, well, in the House and perhaps in the Senate, and there's a strong likelihood that they will take control of the House of Representatives, which would certainly put the brakes on any of the more ambitious parts of President Trump's agenda. And this is, I should point out, exactly what happened in 2010. When uh, Barack Obama came, was elected and was elected, in fact, with large enough legislative majorities to do things like, uh, Obamacare and financial reform. And, and there was a reaction from the electorate in that point. And so this is the kind of thing. It's sort of almost a built in check that makes it difficult to do things that are too radical for too long in our system. And it's one of the things that gives me at least a certain amount of, of hope for, for the future, I suppose. <laughs> so the, that's a good place to, 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 to deal, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it, it does say to me that the, uh, the gravity of, uh, American politics does tend to go to the center. Yes. Given that we've talked about sort of your background, your politics, we've had a really interesting discussion about all these different things. Uh, can I ask, uh, are you still a believer? Do you still believe in the American project, the republic? Yeah, yeah I, I absolutely do. And if I didn't, you know, I wouldn't be, I guess I wouldn't be teaching. I wouldn't be talking to you. I wouldn't be podcasting myself because I believe it's an idea worth fighting for. And that's what I'm doing. Okay. So uh, I, I think we should end on... Um, we uh, we should uh, talk a little bit about your show, the politics guys. If you want to give a plug for that, uh, it might be some European listeners might be might be interested in in and in, uh, in telling about it. So I really enjoy it. I recommend it. What what, what do you do on that show, uh, uh, Michael? Yep. Yeah, well. 
Well, basically, uh, every week uh, we have a conservative and a liberal, and we talk about whatever the – usually it's the top three or four stories in American politics that week. And we try to engage in a, you know, a conversation and try to understand where the other side is coming from. And again, that gets to that idea of, you know, we've been talking about before about, about not talking past each other but understanding uh, the, the fundamental beliefs of the other side, where they're coming from, and, and looking for commonalities, looking for shared uh, shared ground that we can perhaps use as a basis to move forward. I, I, I think, and my co-hosts on the show think, that there's far too little of that in, in American politics and in society in general. And so we're trying to carve out a little oasis of that and attract people to that. And, you know, with any luck, uh, uh, that will that will grow from there. Uh, absolutely. And uh, I, I, let me follow up that recommendation. I, I really enjoy the show as well. And what I like about it is um, that, uh, you know, well, for someone who's a bit of an aficionado of American politics, um, you from listening to your guy, you, you show up, I get, I just get a really good rounded view of an issue, you know? Well, thanks. Would, would, without the, without knee-jerk partisan Twitter yelling. <laughs> You know, we, we try, we try really hard to do that. And also we, we try to listen to our audience because we have, we have listeners on both the left and the right. And whenever someone suggests to me that maybe I'm, you know, uh, parroting talking points or something like that. I take that seriously because I think it's so important for us to always you know, examine our own uh, preconceptions and our own approach. Cause if we're not, being reflective people, then I think it's so easy to fall into that sort of that that sort of unfortunate uh, uh, political just you know posturing and not really thinking about why we believe what we believe. Uh, a grandstanding free zone. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Michael Baranowski, thank you very much for being with us. Oh, it's been my great pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Well. Our theme tune is Love the Government by El Papa Giraffe and is licensed under Creative Commons. You can follow us on iTunes or your preferred podcast app.